Well, please turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, it's on page 822 of the Bible provided underneath your seat. Friends, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, please take advantage of that one. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would love for you to take that Bible home and make it yours. Uh, please do this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Again, that's on page 822. I, I don't know if you heard this week, uh, but uh, this week a powerful artificial intelligence platform was released called ChatGPT. Anybody hear about that? ChatGPT, a few of you. Uh, it's basically a chat bot that can answer almost any question. It can carry on intelligent conversations with you. It can create essays and, and paragraphs of info on the fly in virtually any style that you ask it to. So, friends, I just want to confess this morning and admit I have spent far too much time on chat GPT uh, testing out the crazy and amazing stuff it can do. Uh, last night, in light of our sermon text this morning, I asked ChatGPT to act like I was the White House press secretary and write a 100-word briefing on behalf of the President of the United States about a particular issue of national importance here in Arizona, a dire crisis that concerns our neighbors to the South. Here's what it came up with. Again, straight from chat GPT. Good afternoon, everyone. I am the White House Press Secretary, John Diedrich, and I'm here today to provide a briefing on behalf of the President. The President has been made aware of the lack of white cheese sauce available in Mexican food restaurants in Arizona, and he is concerned about this issue. The President believes that all Americans should have access to the foods they love, and he is committed to working with the restaurant industry to ensure that white cheese sauce is more widely available in Mexican food restaurants in Arizona. Amen. <laughs> the President encourages everyone to voice their support for this important issue and to contact their representatives to let them know that white cheese sauce matters. Thank you for your time, and I will be happy to take any questions you may have. That's for real. Now, what do you think? Could I pass for the press secretary of, of the United States thanks to chat GPT? Sounds quite presidential, doesn't it? Right? I even spoke this morning with my notes in this, this folio with the presidential seal on it. Right? Did that make me the White House press secretary? What, what about if I had chosen a more serious topic, not white cheese sauce, but the actual immigration crisis that's going on right now? Would that have made me the press secretary? Well, of course not, because I can't just self-select and authorize myself to speak on behalf of the President of the United States. He must authorize me first. Here's a question for you. We know who speaks for the President. But who in this world speaks for Jesus? Jesus isn't here physically on earth anymore. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. So who speaks on his behalf? Or more importantly, who has King Jesus authorized to speak for and act now in this time for him between the resurrection and second coming? Who has he delegated to be his official representative on the earth? It's an important question, isn't it? Because once we know the answer, we'll need to make sure that our lives are ordered around the delegate that Jesus has chosen. Well, thankfully, we find the answer to this important question in our passage this morning in Matthew 16. We're going to read together 
verses 13 to 23, but our text this morning will focus on verses 13 to 20. Again, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And this is the word of the Lord. Friends, each Sunday I give to you what I hope will be the main idea of the text, kind of a a summary sentence that sets the agenda of the sermon. Well, today is no different. Uh, Normally I try to make my main idea brief and memorable. Uh, today I'm aiming for clarity and thoroughness. So it's a tad longer than normal. Okay. Here's the main idea of the text that I trust will be the main idea of the sermon this morning. King Jesus is the builder and architect of his church. The confessing assembly of those who represent his heavenly rule on earth. A little bit of a mouthful. Let's try it again. King Jesus is the builder and architect of his church. And what is the church? It's the confessing assembly of those who represent his heavenly rule on earth. Two points this morning. Number one, from verses 13 to 17, Jesus' kingly identity. Jesus' kingly identity. And number two, verses 18 to 20, Jesus' kingdom entity. I was trying to be a little cute there with the the wording of that. You might just say, who is Jesus and what is the church? Jesus' identity, Jesus' people. Beloved, today I pray that we will, like Peter, rightly confess the identity of Jesus Christ with a heart full of faith. And even more than that, I pray that this morning together we will rejoice in our King's promise and intention to build His church until He comes. We have been granted the King's royal charter to represent Him by proclaiming and protecting the gospel until He comes again. I pray that this sermon might help us do so even more faithfully. Number one, Jesus' kingly identity. Friends, our text today is at a pivotal point in Matthew's gospel. To this point in Matthew, and this point in Jesus' ministry, the question about who he is and what he came to do has, has lingered thick in the air. 
the crowds, they marveled at Jesus' mighty works, but often with confusion and bewilderment. The religious leaders blasphemed him and accused him of being an agent of Satan instead of sent by God. Even the disciples' growth in grasping Jesus' identity was slow and sporadic, wasn't it? Two weeks ago, we saw at the beginning of Matthew 16, the disciples' dullness about what Jesus meant by the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You could almost sense Jesus' inner eye roll when he let them know he wasn't talking about actual bread, but about the teaching of those religious leaders. Their understanding of who he was was certainly growing, but so often they missed the point. Well, friends, all of that changed on that day in Caesarea Philippi so long ago. Caesarea Philippi, by the way, is a city located in the far north of Israel. And in Jesus' day, it was under Roman rule. You can even hear that in the name of the city, Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. The city was known for its, its shrine to the Greek god Pan. Caesarea Philippi was a predominantly Gentile and pagan city within the boundaries of Israel, which makes what happened there on this day be infused with massive significance, I think. Look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Well, friends, right away, you can see the problem with any of these answers, right? These answers place Jesus alongside the prophets of old. Jesus was indeed a great prophet, wasn't he? He was the supreme prophet that Moses and the other prophets had forecasted would come, to whom all should listen and obey. But friends, by virtue of who he was, Jesus was far greater than John. He was far greater than Elijah and Jeremiah. None of these answers did justice to Jesus' identity. And so he asked his disciples in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? Peter, as we've seen him already do, and Matthew takes the lead. He steps to the front. He answers Jesus on behalf of the disciples who had so long struggled to piece things together. He replied, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And all of a sudden, it's like theological fireworks ignite the night sky. Finally, one of the disciples gave a full and right confession about the identity of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're new to Christianity, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ. No, it's his title. That's why Peter says here, you are the Christ. You are the Christos, which is simply the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one. Jesus, Peter says, you are the, the one that God has especially anointed as the human king to sit on David's throne and reign with the everlasting dominion promised to David so long ago about his, about his descendant. Peter's answer draws together, doesn't all the ancient hopes of God's promised salvation that he had made to the, from the very beginning. First to Adam and Eve, and then to Noah, then Abraham and Moses, and finally to King David, to whom the Lord promised a scion, a descendant son, that would be the one promised to all those before him. The, the prophets foretold that this Messiah would be anointed with a full measure of God's Spirit to lead God's people out of their bondage to sin and death. 
He would establish a new and better covenant for God's people. He would be the one to bring God's people home to God. The lid had finally come off. One of Jesus' own finally understood. All God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ. He does the mighty works that the prophet said the Messiah would do. His words are infused with insight and power and credibility that accord with the truth and compel the human conscience. Even Jesus' family tree confirms his identity. He's the son of Abraham, the royal son of David. No man ever possessed these unique qualifications. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. But Peter didn't stop there, did he? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Of course, the Son of God, the term the Son of God, signifies a special and even kingly relationship with God. Adam and then Israel and then Israel's king were all called God's Son in the Old Testament. But friends, doesn't Peter's title for Jesus here reverberate with the significance that moves past, far past any earthly kingly title. Peter's confession isn't just that Jesus is a fully, a fully human king, but that he is fully God. After all, the disciples and Peter himself had just seen Jesus walk on the water, just like the Old Testament says that Almighty God does. Jesus has exercised his authority over the weather and everything in this physical realm and in the spiritual realm over the demons. No, Peter wasn't saying that that Jesus is just merely the son of God like the human king Israel had, but Jesus is ontologically by nature the unique son of God. The God of the ages stepped into this world in human flesh. It's an explosive reality, friends, that altered the plight of humanity forever. We sing about it this morning. True God of true God, light from light eternal. Lo, he shuns not the virgin's womb. Son of the Father begotten, not created. Beloved, it defies the human imagination that the maker of Mary should become Mary's son. But into this world, our God stooped. Friends, this Christmas season, are you taking time amid all the hustle and bustle, all the glitter and tinsel, to fill your soul with the glorious truths of the incarnation of God? You realize what it means that the Son of God became a man, right? It means that what you see in Jesus is what you get with God. He is exactly like his father. In Christ, God is one who stoops and serves and bleeds and dies for you. To believe this changes everything. Peter's words on that day in Caesarea Philippi crackle with the white heat of Jesus' glory. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's not like the Son of the gods of the nations. He's not like Pan, who receives the dead worship of, of the citizens of Caesarea Philippi. He's not like the Caesars of Rome, who were, were revered as a god in the Roman Empire, but who died one after the other, after the other, after the other. No, he is the Son of the ever-living, self-sustaining, all-powerful, sovereign God. Friends, is this how you identify Christ? 
There is no more important question than you can answer in this life. Who is Jesus to you? Any answer that falls short of Peter's answer, friends, is the wrong one. Jesus isn't your friendly neighborhood rabbi from whom we can learn a few good things. He's not the Jewish Gandhi, you know, a wise man who did some really good works that we can admire. Jesus is the God-man. He's not some sort of 50-50 mashup or weird combination of the two, but 100% and 100% Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's the Messiah King that God promised would rule over his redeemed and forgiven people. Friends, in the incarnation, God in Christ came to rescue us, to live and die in our place and so reconcile to himself if we trust in him. In Jesus, the throne of David became the throne of the universe. God in Christ rules over all. Have you bowed your knee to this Christ like Peter had? Is he your Lord? Does he rule your life? I think it's evident that Peter's words press beyond intellectual assent. They are pregnant with worship and confidence and faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice what happens in verse 17. Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which simply means son of Jonah, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my, but my Father who is in heaven. So in response to Peter's confession, Jesus immediately like heaps this, this truckload of a beatitude on Peter, right? Blessed are you. Peter, you're marked by, by God's favor and joy. Why? Because of what Peter confessed was divine in origin. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to him. No human did. It wasn't because Peter was a little bit more intelligent than the other 11. Peter had better connections than they did, right? Peter had just kind of read the right books. No. Peter's confession, Jesus says, is by grace alone. Peter doesn't get kudos for his words. God receives the praise for Peter's confession. This is not a knowledge that can be achieved or found in some sort of divine scavenger hunt. It can only be, be revealed. The Apostle Paul uses the same type of ver verbiage that Jesus did about himself and his, his testimony. Listen to Galatians 1.16. Paul writes that the God who called him by grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Did you hear that? That God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Friends, Peter is unique in that he's the first apostolic confessor of the identity of Jesus. But friends, the way that Peter came to this knowledge is not unique. In other words, the only way that any of us can come to accurately understand and confess Jesus by faith, faith is through divine grace. God reveals, and then we confess. Friends, this truth ought to fill us with humility and gratitude and wonder. I feel like so much of my work as a pastor is to work and pray that God might both create and sustain this type of confession of Jesus among us. Friends, you'll hear Peter's words reflected in the, in the confessional vows that our baptism candidates take in the water. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
But there's so much more. This confession is so much more than just kind of an intro to Christianity. Well, friends, this is the confession that we should pray will roll off our tongues on our, in the whisper of our deathbed. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Number two, Jesus' kingdom entity. We've seen his kingly identity. Now let's look in the rest of our time at this kingdom entity, the church. Friends, it may not be apparent to you at the, at the outset here, but what, what is happening here in this moment is a watershed moment in human history. Up to this point, the disciples had, had struggled to come to this full understanding of who Jesus was. But once one of them did, once the confession of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God was articulated by Peter, it's like God put into motion his gospel invasion of the world. Peter confesses. Jesus says, now it's time to marshal the troops. It's like Jesus is is sending his troops to the front lines. The invasion is imminent. He says, I will build my church. Once Peter confesses Jesus as king and God, Jesus decides it's time to activate the mission and establish a beachhead for the gospel upon Peter as he represents the other disciples. It would be Peter and the apostles that will serve as the foundational pillars for the gospel's advance in the world. Jesus continues talking to Simon in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, Friends, within these three verses is like a dense ball of theological yarn to untangle, okay? Uh, First of all, you've got the issue of who or what the rock is in verse 18 that Jesus says he's going to build the church on. Um, Figuring out that little tiny detail has uh, separated Roman Catholics and Protestants for centuries. So it's actually not just a little detail, is it? It's a massive, important thing. And then you have this slew of images that Jesus employs one right after the other after the other about the church and things surrounding it. So there are the gates of hell. There are the keys of the kingdom. There's binding and loosing, right? What are all these images? What do they communicate? How do they fit together? Well, we're going to get there. But first of all, just notice something for a second. Peter confesses the identity of Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do? His response isn't something like, Yes, Peter. And now, from now on, I want you to be an all-in, passionate, disciple, gospel warrior and take the nations by storm on your own with the gospel. Now, what does Jesus do the moment Peter confesses? Jesus says, yes, that's right. That's who I am. And now I'm going to promise that I'm going to gather my people. Friends, Christianity is inescapably corporate. Yes, the gospel is good news for the redemption of of individuals, but ultimately what Jesus is out to accomplish in this world is not merely to save individual sinners that would be isolated from each other on their own spiritual island, but to gather his people together, to build his church, that through the church the gospel would be proclaimed in all the earth. Friends, to help us understand the gist of these verses, I'm going to give you three subpoints that I think highlight what Jesus is saying here. I don't normally give subpoints, I'm going to today, so I hope they're helpful. Okay, here, here they are, points A, B, and C. Number one, 
Letter A, the church's confessional foundation. The church's confessional foundation. Letter B, the church's enduring protection. Letter C, the church's representative authority. Confessional foundation, enduring protection, representative authority. Let's look at the church's confessional foundation. Notice again verse 18, and Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. We hear this phrase, and I think we're in danger of kind of thinking, yeah, that's that's Christianese, right? That's Christian lingo, blah, 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 church stuff, right? But friends, when Jesus said this, Peter and the disciples' jaws would have hit the floor. This is the first time the word church has been used in the entire New Testament. Up to this point in Matthew, the overwhelming emphasis in Jesus' teaching and preaching has been on what? On the kingdom. It's centered on the truth that God's future redemptive reign, His kingdom rule has, has broken into this age through Jesus. And this reality demands repentance towards God and faith in Christ. But here Jesus doesn't say, you're Peter and on this rock I will build my kingdom. He says on this rock I will build what? My church. The word translated church here is the Greek word ekklesia. It simply means assembly or gathering. In the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word described the congregation or the assembly of Israel as it gathered. But clearly here, Jesus is not talking about the gathering of national Israel, is he? He's made it increasingly clear already in Matthew that, that his new kingdom family is not going to be based on bloodline or nationality, but on faith in him. No, Jesus has in mind God's new assembly of those who confess and follow him, the king, just like Peter confessed. Clearly what's in view here in verse 18 is the universal church, the church in every time and in every place, the invisible church, as it were. Now, every, or excuse me, the universal church must necessarily be expressed in local churches, no doubt. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. You cannot think of one without the other. But friends, this new community that Jesus promises to build here in verse 18, the church universal, it has yet to gather. You realize that? When will it gather? On the last day. That's when Jesus will finally and fully gather his people together to worship him for all eternity. It's still being built by Jesus until he gathers all his people from every tribe, tongue, and nations at the end to worship him. But notice how Jesus talks about this great assembly of the people of God. He calls it my church. I'm going to build my church. The church is being constituted. It's being created by Jesus himself. It is his. He will purchase it through his work on the cross. And he will establish it through his resurrection from the dead. Beloved, the church is not some Christian convention designed to give pastors a job. No, the church is God's idea. It's Jesus' creation. He is the, the builder and the architect. It's His. Notice the foundation on which Jesus will build the church. Let's back the truck up once again, okay? Peter confesses the identity of Jesus. You're the Christ. And immediately Jesus says to Simon Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. 
Simon affirmed Jesus' title, and now Jesus, in response, gives Simon a name. You are Petros. You're the rock. Sometime during the third century, uh, the Roman Catholic Church began to interpret this verse in making a case for papal infallibility, that the bishop of Rome in following succeeding Peter is infallible and has exclusive authority, that in making Peter the rock and giving him the keys of the kingdom, Jesus was establishing an infallible line of, of, of bishops in the, in the church, the papacy, the pope alone speaks for Jesus. Well, the problem is that this text doesn't say anything about Peter's successors, his exclusive authority, or his infallibility. In fact, what we do have in this passage is Peter looking extremely fallible in verses 21 to 23 when he tries to hijack Jesus' mission to go to the cross, and Jesus says, that's satanic. So, in order to avoid looking like Rome, some Protestants have said, well, the rock here must be not Peter, right? It must be Peter's confession. That Jesus is building the church on what Peter said. Or, or that what Jesus really was doing, it, it, what really was happening is that when Jesus said this, you're the rock, or on this rock I will build my church, he was, he was pointing his finger back at himself. You are Petros, and on this rock I will build my church. After all, in 1 Peter, Peter himself calls Jesus the cornerstone of the new temple that God is building. But actually, the Greek vocab of the sentence is plain as day in favor of a Peter interpretation. Jesus literally said, you are Petros. It's the masculine word for rock, since Simon was a man, right? You are Petros. And on this Petra, which is the normal word for rock in the Greek, I will build my church. You hear the play on words? You are rock, Simon. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, why does he do this? Well, remember what had just happened. Peter was the first disciple in history to confess Jesus as Messiah and God. And in doing so, he becomes kind of a first among equals among the disciples. It was Peter who would preach at Pentecost. It's Peter to whom God gave the vision about the inclusion of the Gentiles and the ceremonial cleanness of all foods. But friends, Peter here represents all Jesus' apostles in their own confession of Jesus as Lord and King and God. Here's the deal. Because of the context Listen, hang with me. Because of the context, you cannot separate Peter from his confession. They are inextricably tied together theologically. So as history progresses, after Jesus dies and rises and ascends to heaven, how do we see him fulfilling his promise to build his church? And just read the book of Acts, right? It's through the preaching and confession of the apostles. It's through the apostolic preaching of the gospel that Jesus builds the church. Likewise, our call to worship. Paul wrote to the Ephesians that the church, comprised of Jews and Gentiles, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Friends, Simon Peter wasn't the ultimate foundation that Rome makes him out to be. 
but he was the historical foundation. He was the first confessor of Jesus as king, the first among the apostles who eventually all confessed that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. Jesus is promising Peter here that he will lay the foundation stone of the church upon the apostles' confession and preaching of the gospel. And by the way, by the way, the plumb line from that foundation is still in place today. Christ continues to build his universal church as local churches like ours preach the apostolic gospel and guard the faith once delivered to the saints. So how does Jesus constitute his church? He builds it on the foundation of the confessing Peter who represents the confessing apostles whose gospel proclamation is what Jesus used to build his church. You know what that means, friends? Since the church is built on the confessing Peter and the apostles, that means that we are a confessing people. The church is comprised of those who by faith make the same confession that Peter made so long ago. That's the church's confessional foundation. Now let's look at its enduring protection. I'm, so, I'm sorry to kind of divide these, these verses up. But I'm just trying to make it clear in your mind what's going on here, okay? Peter's words to, uh, excuse me, Jesus' words to Peter are infused with hope. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Friends, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell here is just reflective of Old Testament language about the gates of Sheol or the gates of death. I don't think Jesus is so much talking about Satan and the demonic realm per se, but the realm of the dead, which of course is, is tied to Satan's domain. There is scarcely a more beautiful promise in all the Bible. Jesus will not let death overwhelm his people. The gates of Hades represent the imprisoning power of death. These are powerful gates. Those whom these gates shut in cannot escape. But even these powerful gates cannot prevail over the church of the King, the Son of the living God. Friends, we are the people of the risen King. United to Him by faith, we share in Jesus' glorious resurrection. And so the assembly that Jesus is building is empowered with an indestructible life. Did you realize that? The church is protected by the very one who conquered death. We have nothing to fear. The gates of hell cannot prevail over the church. Does this mean that, that the individual local churches will never die? No, not at all. Churches shut their doors all the time. There might even come a day in decades or centuries to come that Redeeming Grace Church closes its doors for the last time. I pray that's not the case, that it never happens as long as we're faithful, but you never know it might. But have you, ne have you ever noticed that, that no matter how often churches close, no matter how much governments try to suppress Christianity, no matter how much adherents of false religions persecute churches, it seems like the gospel continues to grow. Even if it takes hundreds of years for gospel churches to reappear in a place, they do. Just think what's going on right now in China, which despite fierce opposition, has thousands of churches and millions of believers in Jesus. Think about the Muslim world, where it's being reported that an increasing number of Muslims are becoming disenfranchised with Islam and leaving it altogether. 
Just this week, in the Christmas service of Ras Al-Khaimah Evangelical Church, in which our supported worker, Doug, Douglas Reed, ministers, he preached that Christmas service, 15 Muslims showed up to hear the gospel. One family, one Muslim family told Douglas, what I just reported, we're done with Islam. We want to know more about Jesus. Beloved, praise the King. Death cannot swallow the church that he is building. All those for whom he has died will be gathered in. Number C, number C. That's like a Home Alone reference. A, 2, and D. Letter C, the church's representative authority. The church's representative authority. Jesus continues in verse 19. I will give you, still speaking to Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, we are now starting to wade into the theological weeds. If we haven't been there already, what in the world does Jesus mean here? Well, again, friends, think about what's happening. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he's the king. Jesus then constitutes the church on the confessing Peter and gives Peter the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the king's reign over his people. So the, so the kingdom is not the church, but the kingdom is certainly related to the church since Peter, the rock on which the church is being built, has the keys of the kingdom. And what, are the, what do keys do? Keys typically open and shut a door, don't they? They allow or prevent a person from entering a new space or domain. The basic idea of the metaphor, I think, is, is, is entry and exclusion. Jesus gives Peter and the apostles at this point in history his authority to open and shut in the kingdom of heaven. They will represent heaven's authority on earth. Peter, I think, is kind of functioning here as the steward of the kingdom. You know what a steward does in a king's castle? He holds the keys, right? He's the keeper of the king's house. He manages it. He holds the keys. He lets the right people in and keeps the wrong people out. The steward acts as the king's representative. What the steward does has the king's backing. But notice here how Peter says, or Jesus says, Peter would exercise these keys, not by opening and shutting per se, but by binding and loosing. Yet another metaphor. Rock, gates, keys. Now binding and loosing. It's foreign language to us, but I think it would have been familiar to the Jews. The, the rabbis would often talk about whether some law applied to or bound a particular person or in a set of circumstances to that law or whether they were loosed from it. Friends, Jesus essentially gave Peter and the apostles this type of authority to make judgments about people in the kingdom and about their confession of faith in Jesus. Again, I'm trying to help us see this. I hope I'm not being redundant. Jesus established Peter as the church's foundation because of his right confession of faith. And now Peter must ensure that the right people belong to the church according to the right confession of faith in Jesus. And do you see this massive privilege and responsibility that Jesus gives Peter and the apostles here? 
The steward with the king's keys doesn't just admit people through the door into some kind of nebulous kingdom space. He means for them to be admitted into something that will stick. They are bound. I'm giving you these kings to bind and loose. You are bringing people into a, an assembly to which they'll belong. The, the keys of the kingdom kind of function like Jesus' authority superglue, don't they? Jesus doesn't mean here that, that Peter and the apostles' pronouncements kind of coerce heaven. Like what we decide, heaven responds to. Rather, it simply means that Peter represents heaven's judgments on earth. He's the steward whose actions with the keys binds on earth what is already bound in heaven and vice versa in the lucid. Friends, what Jesus is doing here, I know this is heavy and it's theological, but what Jesus is doing here is granting Peter an institutional charter for the church. So often, we American evangelicals don't like to speak of the church as an institution. We want it to be organic, right? We want it to be just a welcoming, fluid place of love. Okay, amen. But friends, it's inescapable that something institutional is going on here. Jesus is authorizing Peter to establish a society of people on earth that has definite boundaries, a common source of identity, a shared confession, all under Christ's rule. Jesus is giving Peter and the apostles his royal charter, his royal edict to speak and act on his behalf. He's authorizing them to carry his message and proclaim it, to make judgments about kingdom citizens in the church on his behalf, just like a, an official ambassador would do an official delegate of the king who, who carries with him the king's edict into a foreign land to speak the king's message and represent the king's rule. Now, stay with me. You say, John, you sound like a Roman Catholic. What in the world does this have to do with the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because, friends, we really can't understand what's going on here in Matthew 16 without fast-forwarding two chapters to Matthew 18. So would you turn over with me to Matthew 18? Matthew 18, we'll look at verses 15 to 20. The context here is conflict between believers and repentant sin. And Jesus here prescribes these escalating steps of resolution. And what we understand now to be a the church discipline process, first talk to the sinning brother alone, then take two or three, then verse 17 says, if he won't repent after meeting with two or three others, tell it to whom? The church. There it is again, the ecclesia. Only this time, clearly, it's not the universal church that's in view, is it? He's not saying, take it to the global magisterium. No. This is a church in which the sinner and the two or three know each other in which there are accountable relationships and expectations. Clearly, Jesus is referring to the local church to which this confessor belongs and is known. And at, if after bringing the unrepentant brother before the church and he is still hardened in his sin, the church is to deal with the man as if he is not part of the covenant community any longer. Jesus says, deal with him as you would a Gentile and a tax collector. They're to remove him from their number and approach him as if he is not a follower of Jesus. And then notice what Jesus says. Notice what he says in verse 18. 
Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Friends, are there light bulbs going off in your head yet? Theological light bulbs. The same representative authority that Jesus gave Peter and the apostles in Matthew 16, 18, he gives to local churches in Matthew 18, 18. In reality, the royal edict that Jesus gave Peter was the royal edict he intended for local churches to carry. It's local churches where two or three are gathered in Christ's name that Jesus is authorized to speak for Him, to make judgments on earth that reflect the judgments of heaven. Not perfectly, of course. The church isn't infallible. But so far as we're able, it's the gathered church that Jesus is authorized to speak as His representative. We're His embassy. We represent the King of Heaven in a foreign land. Every time we meet, it's like Heaven's flag is raised over our gathering. This is the domain of Christ the King, the Son of the living God. We speak for Him. We proclaim the message that He's given us. We oversee the confessors of Jesus that have committed to gather in this place. You say, John, what exactly does the church have the authority to do? If we have this authority as Jesus' embassy, well, think about it. In Matthew 16, Peter makes his confession of faith, and then Jesus gives him the keys of the kingdom to wield. In Matthew 18, someone who confesses Jesus as king is not living in such a way that would make his confession of faith credible, and so the church is called to remove him. In chapter 16, the gospel confession is in view. In chapter 18, gospel confessors are in view. In chapter 16, it's the what of the gospel that's in view. Gospel doctrine. In chapter 18, it's the who of the gospel that's in view. Gospel people. Put simply, Jesus has given Redeeming Grace Church in every local church that is a true church His authority to make judgments about the what and the who of the Christian gospel the what and the who of the Christian gospel. He's authorized us to proclaim the what and to teach it and to guard it and to safe, to safe keep it, right? Till he comes. To affirm the confession of the confessors here, if you will. And then he's authored us to wield the, king, the keys of the kingdom about the who of the gospel, to oversee the membership and discipleship of those who confess that Jesus is the king. This is how you represent me on the earth through the local church. You say, well, John, explain that to me. Like, give me the nuts and bolts. How do we do this? Well, the most basic ways, what makes a church a church is that we rightly preach the true gospel and we rightly administer the ordinances that Jesus has given. After all, in Matthew 26, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper to the twelve, the same ones to whom he had given what? The keys. And then in the New Testament, what do you see the church doing? To whom he's given the keys? Taking the, the Lord's Supper. 
Matthew 28, the risen king, based on his universal authority in heaven and on earth, commands his disciples to do what? To go into all the world and make disciples, preaching this gospel of Jesus that he's authorized them to preach, baptizing those who trust in him and then teaching them. In other words, go and establish churches where the gospel is preached and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are administered. That's how you will mark out who are the true confessors in me. So tonight, friends, when we gather for our members meeting, we're not just conducting a business meeting. We are wielding the keys of the kingdom of heaven. When we welcome in a new member, we're exercising the authority of Jesus the King, the King of heaven and earth, to say we believe that, that Brother Bob confesses the true gospel credibly and that he's publicly identified himself with Christ in baptism. So what? He's welcome at the Lord's table. We promise to oversee his spiritual life together with the rest of the church. That's what it means to, to wield the keys of the kingdom. What an unbelievable privilege. Far greater than the White House press secretary's privilege to speak for the president, we have the privilege as a church to speak for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords every time we gather together. All right, take a deep breath. That was a lot. What are the takeaways for you and for our life together as a church? I'm just going to give you one, and I'm going to make some application. If the church means this much to Jesus, it should mean this much to us. If the church means this much to Jesus, it should mean this much to us. If Jesus puts the church at the very center of the Christian life, then brother, sister, it should be at the very center of your Christian life. And so many Christians today look at the church as one of several options on the buffet line before them. You know, you've got, you've got sermon podcasts, and you've got YouTube shorts, and you've got Bible studies and, you know, things like that. You've got campus ministries and all the rest, none of which are bad but none of which are authorized to speak for the king of heaven and earth. And none of which Jesus intends to be at the center of believers' lives. Too often people view the church as an option on the buffet and frankly kind of treat it as the, the stale broccoli that's been sitting out too long. You can laugh. <laughs> they see the church as an unnecessary, kind of something they can do without type of thing. But look at it this way. If the church, the local church, wields the keys of Jesus' authority and you refuse to submit your life to a local church, which is all that church membership is, what true confidence can we have that you're submitting to Jesus? I know that sounds harsh, friends. I know, I know. But if you hear the truth and you refuse to place your life under the authority that Jesus has prescribed for you in this age until he comes, what confidence can we have that you've placed your life under his authority? There is one rock on which the true church is built and against which the gates of hell will not prevail. There is one set of keys which now the gospel-confessing local church has. No one else has them. So if you confess, I'm with Jesus, but refuse to say, I'm with his key-bearing church, you really are not submitting to the king. 
If you refuse to submit your life to the oversight of a church, it may very well be that your profession of faith is false. For many of you, I know the whole idea of church membership is new. You think it's kind of strange. You wonder why we talk about it so much, why I talk about it so much. Well, friends, I hope after today's message you're beginning to understand. I think for many that word membership just throws them off from the start. Well, just remember, Christians did not get the idea from Lifetime Fitness or Costco or the Country Club. Right? We got it from 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the church as a body with many members. The members work for the spiritual good of the body, oversee each other's discipleship to Christ. The church is made up of a family who has fam family members who love each other and share each other's burdens and sorrows and joys and victories. We, we show up at the family meal and help each other obey the head of the household. If you're not submitting your life to the membership of a church, friend, Jesus wants you to do that. I can say that with his authority, not mine. If you're not a member of a church, Jesus wants you to become one. It doesn't have to be our church. But it needs to be a gospel-preaching, gospel-confessing church. And for those of you who are members of the body here at RGC, beloved, is the church at the center of your Christian discipleship? Is the good of this people at the center of your spiritual ambitions? Are you a Sunday morning only member? Or are you actively looking for ways to serve and encourage and strengthen and work for the spiritual good of, of those in our church all week long as you're able? Friend, are you willing to give your time and your energy and your treasure for the good of the gospel here, knowing the great privilege that Jesus has given us corporately to represent him as his embassy here in the Southwest Valley? Having a high view of of the key-wielding representative of the high king of heaven. A lot of highs there. Having a high view of the church in this way, it changes everything, doesn't it? It infuses the mundane tasks of church life with divine meaning and purpose. For instance, those of you who set up for hospitality, you're not just setting up tables and chairs for an event. You're facilitating the fellowship of the embassy of the high king of heaven. Those of you who take meals in response to the meal train calls, you're not just bringing a saint a meal to lend a helping hand. You're loving a brother or sister in your family for whom Christ has died. You're not just running a sound booth. You're making clear the saving message of the risen king. You're not just changing a disgusting diaper. You're tending to a boy or a girl who we pray will one day bow the knee, thinking Jesus. You're not just an aide in a classroom managing unruly kids. You're serving our children with the hope of the gospel of the king. And who knows, who knows, your ministry, your word of the gospel might be the catalyst that God uses to make their little hearts alive. Surely, if the church means this much to him, it should mean this much to us. Let's pray.
Oh God, this is your word. We ask for hearts to obey it and to love it and to follow you, submitting our thoughts and our minds to the King. What a privilege you've given us to represent you as your body here on earth in Goodyear. <laughs> in this little embassy of the kingdom, bearing such massive privilege and massive responsibility. Oh God, may you find us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.